Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Um, will you pray with me before we jump into today's topic? Father, the, uh, the logic of your story is unlike anything we hear outside of these spaces. Bring me down to where I am weak, because then and only then will discover your strength. That's not the message we hear in the world, Lord. The message we hear is we need to be strong in and of ourselves. The message we hear is that we need to put on happy faces. The message we hear is that we need to learn to hide and we need to learn to posture and jockey for position and to power grab. That's the message we hear. And yet fundamentally, your story is that we don't have to do any of those things. We get to stand completely still, completely authentic in ourselves with hands open saying, take me as I am. And your message, your words is, that's the only way I can take you. I will have you. Lord, that's such a paradigm shift. <laughs> it's such a paradigm shift. And as we continue in this series, as we look at the way you acted at one point in history with your people Israel, and how that story is also our story today, will you open the minds of everyone here today Will you speak your words of truth? Will you flip it, flip it over, Lord, invert it, that we would walk from this place knowing that to be strong is to be weak. To be strong is to be completely empty-handed and therefore to have everything because we have you. Thank you, Jesus, for this community that you're building. It's all in your crucified and resurrected name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, as Anna said, thank you so much for being here. We are a new community of faith, and uh, our tagline is wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And those aren't words for us. We actively look to, to embody that, to live into that reality. We are in the middle of a series uh, called The Paradigm. I kind of alluded to it. And the idea behind the series, we're looking at the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus, most Jews hold to be the first book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis is like the prologue. Exodus is the first book of the Bible. And um, it details God's interactions, God's work, God's words through his people Israel over and against um, their oppressors, Egypt. And the idea behind this series is that this story, Exodus, is a meta-narrative. It is the one story, so to speak, that within the Exodus, you and I, whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, you and I can locate ourselves. We can look in this story and say, oh, this is my story too. I see myself in it. I see my world in it. And actually, this is the last Sunday of the, the paradigm before we take a month hiatus, I know. We're going to take a break, but it's a, it's a good point uh, to take a break um, because we're going to talk about the gift of the law today. Next Sunday, our good friend Amanda Sadler is going to be here. Um, she's one of the pastors at Hope Roosevelt Island. If you didn't know, there was a place in New York City called Roosevelt Island. Now you do. And that's a trivia question to know if you're a real New Yorker or not. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not. I mean, I've only been here two years, so how, how can I say that? But she's going to be here, and she has a phenomenal story that she's going to share with us. Uh, it's going to be a really, really fun day. Um, and then, as Anna said, we're going to do a mini-series in September called Faith and Work. And the idea behind that is uh, most New Yorkers, we uh, spend a lot of time in our jobs. Amen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No amen for that one, right? Yeah. But what does that mean? All right? If we work so much, how do we be a Christian in our respective industries? Do we check our Christianity at the door? Or if we don't, how do the two intersect? Um, so we're gonna explore that. We're gonna explore maybe uh, what scripture says um, are 
the pros and cons of work, how, how work is a really good thing. Yes, you heard me correct. Work is a really good thing, but maybe where it's gone wrong or where some pitfalls are. So we're going to do that through the month of September, and then we're going to jump back into the paradigm later. Don't worry. It's all going to make sense. Just stay with me, okay? Uh, and today in the paradigm, we're in chapter 19 and 20. So we're reaching the halfway point. There's 40 chapters in all. We opened with the context of a toxic situation, all right? We opened the context. Israel is enslaved to Egypt. And then we hear about the calling of a mediator. God calls one of the Hebrews, Moses, who was raised in the palace of Egypt. And, and he sort of uh, takes on this unique role where before the people, he is like God. And before God, he represents the people. So there's this interesting conflation between this identity. So he calls the mediator, and then we went through the long chapters of God slogging his way through and saving Israel out of the hands of Egypt. So God afflicts plagues, 10 plagues on the Egyptian, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And then Egypt releases Israel, and Israel goes free, but not completely. Egypt sort of has this moment of what the heck did we just do? And they pursue Israel and they pursue them to the Red Sea. And Israel passes through the waters that have divided the Red Sea and Egypt is drowned. And now they've passed the point of no return. They are now fully in God's grasp. They cannot return to Egypt. They are God's people now. And they're taking the first tenuous, fragile steps into their new identity as the people of God. They don't know what that means to say that Yahweh is Lord, but they're, they're learning. And then we had this little lull last week, this lull where, where Moses' um, father-in-law, Jethro, who's a Midianite, shows back onto the scene and it sort of slows the action. And, and it was almost to make the point that this story is not an ethnocentric story and this God is not an ethnocentric God, that Israel has been chosen for the sake of all nations. And today we're getting to chapter 19 and 20 which is the gift of the law. Now we're not gonna, I'm sort of gonna uh, recap it as we go through because there's long chapters. But 19 and 20 need to be read together, all right? They, they make one coherent whole. And here's why, because chapter 19 is the preparation of the people. Chapter 19 is God preparing Israel for the reception of his word, of the law. And then chapter 20 is the famous chapter that, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, you probably have heard of it. It's the Ten Commandments, right? Um, so 20 is the law itself, the content. But you cannot separate the two. And this is where we, as humans, get into trouble. We constantly want to separate the giver from the gift. We constantly want to abstract the teaching from the one who teaches it. You can't do that, and I'm going to prove why that's the case. And hopefully when we leave today, we'll have a more robust understanding of how I can call the law a gift, because it is. <clears throat> so here's how 19 opens. The episode of the entire gift of the law, chapter 19 and 20, begins with a prologue. Begins with a prologue, and this is how it reads. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. Now, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. This is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. That's how the gift of the law begins. It begins with the prologue. And notice, before God gives the law, what does he do? I, I would say the gift of the law has three parts. And the first part, vital, is he says... Remember, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I saved you and brought you to myself. The first thing God tells to his people is, before I give you the law, I want you to remember 
what just happened. Remember what I just did. And this brings us up against one of the primary fallacies and one of the primary false dichotomies between Judaism and Christianity. And whether you grew up in the church or not, you probably, to a certain degree, hold some of this, these views. And this is the, the case. This is uh, the fallacy. Fallacy one about the law. Israel is saved by keeping the law. So if I were to ask you, right, um, how are Jews saved, right? And what I mean by saved is how are the Jewish people put in right relationship with their God? Um, that is, they turn to God and God showers them with acceptance and with love and with grace. How, what, what, what precipitates that process? How are they saved? You would probably answer, as I grew up hearing, well, they keep the law, right? They keep the law. They, they obey the commandments. They do what's right. They avoid what's wrong and that saves them. False. Israel was saved because they put the blood over their doorpost. Israel was saved because they walked through the Red Sea. God already saved Israel. The law is just the gift of that prior salvation. See, the false dichotomy is the Jewish people are saved by keeping the law, by doing right things, avoiding wrong things. And Christians are saved by faith in Jesus. Not true. Not true. Israel was already saved. They are to remember their salvation. Another way of saying all of this, Genesis to Revelation, the entire story, you want to sum it up? Here it is. It's all grace. It's all grace. Top to bottom, left to right. It's all grace. No one deserves anything from this God. This God gives it freely to you and to me. You cannot earn it and you cannot lose it. It's all grace. Israel was chosen and they were plucked out of the hands of the Egyptians and they yielded to this God's promptings and they followed him. The law, notice, came after they were saved out of the hands of Egypt. Why were they saved? Because God went to Abraham hundreds of years before. Abraham didn't ask God to show up and he said, I'm actually gonna produce from you a people that will be my people. God has done it all. And so if you're here today and, and you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing or whatnot, you might hold this belief. Christians still struggle with this belief that what puts us in right relationship with God is our actions, that I need to get my stuff together before I come to this God. Not true. Not true. And that should be incredibly liberating and also terrifying. It's liberating because you cannot earn the love of the Father and you cannot forfeit it. It's terrifying because you know if there's any hope for your life, it's all in him. You have no control. But just so you know, let's debunk this fallacy. Israel is not saved by keeping the law. Israel was saved already. They just have to remember it. It's all grace, start to finish. Israel did not deserve their election. We who put our faith in Jesus, we did not deserve him coming either. The law is almost like God is saying, all right, now you're part of my family and that will never change. Well, here's what it means to be part of the family. And notice, notice, when God says, remember what I did, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. It's not just memory, but it's as Peter N says, memory is to motivate them to obey. The law is connected to grace. It is based on God's gracious act of saving his people. It is not a condition of becoming God's people, for that has already happened in the Exodus. The people do not earn their salvation, they remember it. You do not earn your right relationship with God, you remember how he showered you with love and acceptance. Which is why we say, when we are weak, then he is strong. That's the entire point. No amount of your strength, of your perceived strength, carries two pennies before God. We show up entirely empty-handed, dirty, afraid, ashamed with our strengths and with our weaknesses, and we go, this is all I got. And he goes, perfect. It's all grace. It's all grace. 
The people do not earn their salvation, they remember it. But once remembering their identity constituting story, the story that gave them their identity, they are compelled to act in a manner worthy of their father's family. So what is he saying? That this whole thing of the gift of the law starts with a story that they are to remember. The story gives light. It gives intelligibility to everything that's about to come. So example, I'm from North Carolina. In my house, I was taught to say yes ma'am and yes sir and no ma'am and no sir. And I was taught to say that not just to my elders but to everyone. Anna still makes fun of me, even with like little two-year-olds sometime. When they're doing something, I'll be like, uh, no sir. You know, no ma'am. Um, why? Why, why? Why did my family teach me and teach my brothers and I this law? Was it because it was some ridiculous arbitrary notion that I should say yes ma'am or no ma'am? No, there was a deeper logic. There was a story in place. And if I didn't do it, if I didn't say yes ma'am, yes sir, no ma'am, no sir, did I forfeit my status as part of the Joyce family? No, but there was a deeper story. And what was the story in place that gave rise to that law? The story was this, each human being is worthy of infinite respect. Each human being, no matter how old or how young they are, has been created by the same God that created you, Russell, and therefore you should give them. This, where we come from, this is a sign of respect and you should give them that respect. That's why there was a story that undergirded that law. And the law, this is how we act, this is how we speak, will only make sense because of the story that I remember. So the first thing about the gift of the law is it's a story. God says, you remember what I just did. Like, remember it, dwell on it. You've just been following pillars of fire and clouds. Dwell on that. That's first. And then second, if that's saying this is the story, the father has just adopted you into the family. Well, then the question becomes, well, what does it mean to be part of God's family? What does that mean? And he answers it. In Exodus 19, he says, out of all the nations, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Before God gives the law, he gives them a story to remember. And then he gives them a mission statement. This is who you're going to be. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, with the possible exception of the USA, the people of Israel are the only known people to have a mission statement that defines them. I love this quote, um, and I've, I've used it before. It goes, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Don't just give the law. Give them something beneath it. Cast vision. Don't say we need to do this task. Say this is where we're going. Or it's like that, that, that old story. I don't know where I heard it, but three people were, were building, they were laying brick, right? And, and the first one was asked, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm laying brick. And the second one was asked, what are you doing? He goes, I'm building a wall. And the third one is asked, what are you doing? He goes, I'm building a cathedral where God's spirit can dwell. It's all about uh, the story. It's all about the mission behind what are we doing. That's what God is trying to create in his people. And so he gives them a mission statement. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which brings up the next aspect of the law. Our word that we use law is probably misleading and miscommunicating. And here's why. Because for us, law connotes like cold rules, right? I follow the law. Here are the rules and I keep them. I don't really want to, but I have to or I'm going to be punished for not keeping it. That's not how Israel viewed their law. In fact, the Hebrew word they use is Torah. Torah means teaching. Teaching. So in a sense, what God is giving his people on Mount Sinai is less like a legal code and more like a way of life. He's offering them a philosophy. And if you think about your best teachers that you ever had, the best teachers you have don't teach abstracted facts, right? And dates and names. They tell a story. 
I remember I, um, I studied in London for a semester and I had a professor who taught World War II history from the British perspective. He was awesome. He would uh, hike in four miles every day to class. We're pretty sure he was drunk every day in class. He had this water bottle with some pink liquid, is you know, cranberry vodka or something, I'm not sure. But like, uh, throughout the class, it just went slow, low. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. He was great. Here's why, he had no notes. He'd give us handouts, he'd sit there, He'd sit back in his chair and he'd just start telling the story of the World War II. And I learned more in that class than most others. Why? Because he painted a picture, a wider vision. It wasn't about names and dates. There was something deeper going on. There was a story in place. The law is Torah. It's not law, it's teaching. It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. Fallacy too about the law. Fallacy one is Israel is saved by keeping it. Fallacy two, the law was a burden on Israel. Not true. The law is a burden on us because we think in cold institutional terms, not Israel. It was a way of life. It was life-giving. As Abraham Heschel says, the purpose of the Torah is to bring life to Israel in this world and in the world to come. And if you look throughout scripture and, and Hebrew scripture, you see that. Consider Psalm 119. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice. Notice, I rejoice in following your statutes. Who, is a, who of us as teenagers rejoiced in the statutes of our parents? Yeah. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. The gift of the law was the gift of a philosophy. It was a way of life that brought life, that breathed life into Israel. So then the natural question should be, well, if this is true, Russell, if the law is life-giving and not life-sucking, what happened? What happened? Well, Israel evolved. They did what humans do. We separate the giver from the gift. We added laws. Israel added laws to it, and they put footnotes on their laws and they qualified their laws and they qualified the qualifications of their laws. So by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, it is absolutely a burden. So the law that God gave, the life-giving precept was honor the Sabbath, set one day apart as holy, work six days and separate one and honor it as holy and special. By the time Jesus came around, that had been interpreted to don't walk more than 39 steps in any direction. <laughs> Honor the Sabbath, all right, that's life-giving. Don't walk more than 39 steps in one direction, yeah, that's, that's gonna be a problem. That's not fun. How did that happen? How did this philosophy become so bogged down? Well, I think that the key, the answer to that comes from a line in one of Paul's letters in the New Testament where he's talking about the difference between uh, the law of Israel and faith in Christ. And he says, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit brings life. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit brings life. An example to consider this. We have a law in this land. It's called a speed limit, all right? You might know about it when we drive. Some of you are probably, I don't know about it, you know? <laughs> I don't know what that is. Oh, is that what those numbers are? When we drive, there's a number, and it says this is the maximum speed we can drive on this road. And what do every single one of us think? All right, the speed limit's 55. So does that mean 63 or 64, right? What do we think? What's the letter of the law? How fast can I stretch it in this state on this road before I get pulled over? That's the letter of the law. Those are the questions we ask, which is another way of asking what? How can I get around this law? I don't want to honor it. I want to put myself first, right? And I speed too, just FYI, no judgment there. What's the spirit of the law behind speeding? 
The spirit of the law is simply this. This is the maximum speed where we know this keeps people safe. The reason we have a speed limit of 55 is for your safety and for the safety of the people around you. The spirit of the law is to keep safe so that no one is harmed on this roadway. The letter looks at how I can get around it, how I can beat it. The spirit is, this is how we treat people well. It's putting others before myself. So what happened with Israel? Israel took the life-giving philosophy of their God and they began focusing on the letter of the law as an attempt to get around it, as an attempt to forget that they were saved by God's gracious action. What do all humans do? What are we always looking to do to save ourselves, right? That's why you and I have walked into churches before and we felt immediately judged. Because what happens? We forget the story and we sort of say, all right, let's create our own hierarchies of acceptance. Let's create our own hierarchies of, oh, if you do these things, you're a little more saved. Oh, if you do these things, you're a little more damned. We forget the story. We forget the spirit of the entire law, which is that we have already been saved. We show up empty-handed. Israel forgot the story. So then the question becomes, okay, well, if it if it's begins, if this chapter, the gift of the law, begins with a story to remember that none of it is of their doing, it's all God, and then he gives them a mission statement. Well, how did they forget the story? Why did they start focusing on the letter of the law? And that's answered with the third part of the gift of the law, the third part. Torah is a story to remember, it's a mission statement, and then it's prohibitive statements. And this is the part that really throws a wrench in it. When we get to the Ten Commandments, what do we get? Thou shalt not have any gods above me. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. We have these prohibitive statements. And if it's true what I'm saying, that the Torah is life-giving, why did it come in such negative language, right? Well, I'm gonna go back to the metaphor of my family as an example. So when I was in high school, I had a rule, a law in my house. It was called a curfew, all right? And the way it went was, thou shalt not be up past 11 p.m. There was really no story given as to why, it's just thou shalt not. Maybe you had it too. Now, why did my family institute this law of a curfew? Was it because they wanted their son, when he grew up, to always be in before 11 p.m.? My mom would probably say yes, she would. But no, what was the reason why? Because I was not mature enough, I was not wise enough to understand the purpose of the curfew. I was not wise enough to make right decisions. The goal of the curfew was not to raise a son that always feels like he can't be out past 11. And that became the case, because as I went through high school, it became 11.30, it became midnight and then it eventually dropped, right? The reason behind the law was to keep me safe until a point which I had matured, that I understood the story behind it. Now, there were plenty of nights where I was very angry at my parents, where I was like, this is not love, this is punishment. Now I understand completely. Now I respect them for it. The time I didn't. The entire idea of the curfew was to create a son who didn't need a curfew to live. The curfew simply ensured my safety before time in which I matured. Or another example, I have a dog, I have a puppy, his name is Moses. Moses, that's coincidence by the way. Moses sleeps in a kennel at night. We actually have a very fun game we play every night. I look at him and I say, Moses, get in your kennel. And he looks back at me and he says, Master, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I say, Moses, get in that kennel <laughs> or there will be repercussions. He says, Master, I can run faster than you. <laughs> and that goes on and on. Now, question is, to be a Joyce family dog, is it to sleep in a kennel? No, I want a free dog. I want a dog that doesn't have to sleep in a kennel. Right, that's what I want. I do not want a dog that pees in the house though. I do not want a dog that rips up shoes. 
So in the interest of before Moses is mature enough to be set completely free, I'm protecting him from himself and from us and from the house and all the temptations therein, right? To be a Joyce family dog is not to sleep in the kennel, but he's not ready for that level of freedom yet. He's still maturing. And so until the time when he is fully matured, I'm gonna protect him from himself. And so what is this then, the prohibitive statements? What's the purpose of them? Look at Galatians 3, where Paul, who's a church planter in the New Testament, this is how he puts it. He says, before the coming of this faith, and what he means by that is before Jesus, who is fully God, who came in the flesh, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's why it comes in prohibitive statements, because it was a guardian until the time that Israel was fully evolved and ready and primed for the coming of the Son of God. It's almost as if, friends, what's going on in these two chapters is a father who has adopted children and he's brought them into the family, and he wants to write them a book, a book, and this is dad's best way to live, all right? And the first thing he does is he writes a prologue, and he says, let me tell you the story of why I adopted you. And he recounts the story of his love for them, and why he chose them, and why he's always going to choose them. And then he goes, and now let me give you the mission statement, the dedication page. This is what it means to be part of our family. And then you get into the book of, now here's the best way I've found to live. If you just skip, if you skip the prologue and the dedication page, the book's not gonna make sense. The story gives life to the rest of the law. It's a gift, it's a story, it's a vision statement. And then there are these statements which form the family's identity. That's what's going on. Now that's just the prologue. That's just the prologue. Then look what happens because it just escalates in astonishment. So then we read this in Exodus 19, seven and eight. So God tells Moses to tell the people all that. And Moses goes back down and he summons the elders of the people and he sets before them all the words of the Lord that he had commanded him to speak. And the people all respond together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now, why is that important? Again, this is before the gift of the Ten Commandments. God says, this is what I want you, Moses, to tell the people. And then he tells the people that. And then they go, we're gonna do everything. Why is that important? Two reasons why that's so radical. One, God spoke to all Israel, not a privileged few. Exodus 19.6, God says to Moses, this is what I want you to tell the people of Israel. As Rabbi Sachs says, at Mount Sinai, all Israel became partners to the covenant. God spoke to everyone. The only recorded revelation, not to a prophet or a group of initiates, but to an entire people. God's saying, I'm speaking to all the people. I'm not just speaking to a privileged few. I'm not just speaking to the elders. I'm speaking this message, Moses, is to everyone. Because the mission statement is God wants an equal kingdom where all are priests and it's a holy nation. That's the first thing why it's radical. God spoke to all Israel. Now here's the second thing, which is absolutely insane. Notice, God waits for consent. God waits for consent. Until the people had signified their consent, the revelation could not proceed. The principle at stake is that there is no legitimate government or family without the consent of the governed, even if the governor is creator of heaven and earth. Remember, God had not given the law. He says, go tell the people this, and Moses does, and the people all respond, yes. And then he proceeds. The humility of this God who creates a people With free will, he creates them. He creates us with free will. And then he goes, before 
I do anything else and show you love and affection and desire, you have to allow me. You can reject me. And just so you know, you should hear sexual language. You should. The reason why we get squirmy at that is because we are in a hypersexualized and perverted sense of it. We don't know true intimacy. None of us. But you should hear the sexual language of a love affair where God goes, I will not proceed until you tell me I can go further. I will wait for your consent. Though I created you, though I've given you the gift to reject me, though it's staggering the distance between us, you must give me your consent before I will give you the fullness of my life. You should hear it. This story is an unbelievable love affair between the creator and the creation. And just so you know, that's where we're working toward in the end. A place, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation where heaven and earth are one again. And so the people consent. They say, we, we accept. Lord, proceed with your revelation. And then God tells Moses to tell the people, go consecrate yourselves. Go get ready because I'm going to draw near. Go wash your clothes. Don't come near this mountain. And on the third day, I'm gonna meet you on the mountain. I'm gonna meet you in thunder and in clouds and in fire and in lightning and in earthquake. That's a terrifying spectacle, is it not? Yeah, this doesn't sound like love. Well, I'm reminded of a story in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew. Um, there's a little boy named Diggory and he's approaching Aslan. And Aslan is um, the allegorical representation of God, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's approaching the great lion because he wants to ask him for something. And he goes, there's this, there's this line where Diggory's feeling this increasing sense of, of um, frustration and terror and dread. And it says, at this moment, at first, he had been staring at the lion's giant claws and huge powerful paws. But in his moment of desperation, he looked up into the lion's face. And wonder of wonders, there were great teeming tears sitting in the lion's eyes. Yes, God draws near in thunder and in earthquake and in lightning and in fire, and it terrifies us. But when we look up into the face of the God who's descended onto the mountain, we see tears of love. That's the mystery of the story. That as we go, to use another Lewis line, further up and further in, we are absolutely bowled over at the joy and the delight of this God. So the people take their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Moses has taken up some key leaders and he's left them on another level of the mountain. And then he goes up to the top. You should notice the tripartite division. The paradigm runs through. The people are at the base of the mountain, some key leaders in the middle, and then Moses at the very top. In a couple chapters, we're gonna read about the temple, the temple that has the outer courtyard, and it has the holy place, and then it has the holy of holies. And then thousands of years later, we're gonna discover that the one creator God has always been one and three beautiful indwelling persons. The paradigm runs through the entire story, but they, we'll get to that later. So he goes up to the top of the mountain into the presence of God, and then we get to the famous scene of the Ten Commandments, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He reminds them who he is. He says, I'm the father who adopted you. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter um, because it doesn't matter for our purposes today, but he goes through the 10 uh, defining features of his philosophy, of his way of life. But the first one is what I wanna focus on because that's really important. He says, he waits for their consent. They give it. He says, consecrate yourselves and I'm gonna descend and I'm gonna give you my way of life. And he starts by saying, you will have no other gods before me. But that's actually a little bit of a misleading translation because the phrase is alpanah. Alpanah in the Hebrew, you have no other gods, alpanah. And that means before or above my face. Now I told you to hear the sexual language because it's there. God is saying, hey, if you're with me, look into my face. Oh Israel, if you and I are together, look here. 
Know my face. Know the fullness of it. Stop looking at the claws. Stop looking at the paws. Look in the face. There will be for you no other gods before me. It's a real relationship, friends. Saying, no, 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 it's me and me alone. You will have no other partners but me. You will give the fullness of your mind and of your heart and of your body to me. And the rest of the commandments is almost God saying, look into my face, Israel. Look into my face. In a sense, we might even say the commandments are the face of God. We're learning to love the face of the Father. Number two ensures that they don't confuse the creator God with with creation, so don't make any idols. Number three is to love God's face that has a name. Number four is to love God's face that exists in time and always has, and to honor time and rest. Number five is to honor your parents because to love God's face is to love the giving of life of which your parents gave you life. Number six is to love God's face that grieves when life is taken, so don't take it. A face that is faithful to the covenant partner, just one. To love God's face that says everything is a gift, so you have no need to steal. And a face that is truthful with no deceptive words, a face that does not desire anything that is not given it. No need to covet anyone else's stuff. All 10 of these is as if God is saying, okay, remember this story of how I adopted you, my love for you. Here's the mission statement of what I'm creating. Now, do you give me consent to proceed? Because if you do, then I'm gonna come down. I'm gonna show you my face, Israel, in a way that the other nations won't see it. You're gonna see my face. We are in this covenant relationship. And all of them create this robust sense of the face of God. It's like a toddler. You can almost see a toddler looking at the, the, the face of his or her parents, just touching it, just enraptured by it. That's what's going on here. The gift of the law, friends, is the gift of God's face. Israel is not saved by keeping the law. They've already been saved. They just remember it. They're given a mission statement for life and then they're given the face of the Father. Now the question you might be wondering then, well then how is this the paradigm? How is this the paradigm? Well, Jesus shows up a couple thousand years later and one of his earliest sermons, he gets accused of trying to destroy the law, right? Uh, It's called the Sermon on the Mount and he does because he takes the Ten Commandments and he seemingly reinterprets them. So he goes, hey, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you look at your brother with anger in your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But if you look at another with lust in your heart, you've already done it. He kind of modifies them. He deepens their intensity. He changes them and he's accused of abolishing the law. But then he answers that and he goes, no, don't think I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the face of God. I came to fulfill it. The word he uses is plerao, which a better way of saying fulfill is to make fill, make full like a balloon. I didn't come to abolish the face of God. I came to give it its fullness. In a sense, you don't even realize. I came to give the fullness of the story, the fullness of the face which you've never even looked upon. In a sense, Jesus is saying, look, I know the face of the Father better than you do. And we realize a little bit later what's going on. That with Moses, we were given the law in written form. We were given the face of God in written form. But with Jesus, we were given the law in human form. We were given the face of God in a human way, in a deeper, more fulfilled way. Jesus is the law incarnate, which is why he looks a lot like it and also a lot different, which is why he gets in trouble for healing someone on the Sabbath because the Sabbath had become a point where Israel was just following the rules and Jesus goes, why do you think your father gave you this this time to honor it 
and to honor one another. It's for you. So be healed from your infirmities. Jesus is the face of God, the face of the Father, in a deeper, fuller sense. Go back to what Paul said. The law was a disciplinarian until Christ came. The free child was the law until the deeper purpose of the curfew. Sorry, the curfew was the law until the deeper purpose of the free child could take form. The law was a disciplinary until Christ came. The curfew was the law until the deeper purpose of the free child could take form. And if all of this is true, that the law is the face of God and Jesus is the deeper, fuller sense of the face of God, then what is its deeper purpose? What is the purpose of the law and of Christ? Well, one of them, in an exchange with Jesus, asked him, he goes, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Sum it all up for us. And Jesus looks at him and goes, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. What is the deeper, deepest purpose of the face of God, of the law? Love. Love. Love that is willing to put another first above yourself. Love that is willing to sacrifice your own life for the, the life of the beloved. And then why did we need Jesus to come? Because in and of ourselves, you and I would never reach the deeper purpose of the law. You and I never could. You and I, in and of ourselves, we would take the philosophy and we would do just what Israel did. That's what the church has done in many places. We've taken the gift of life and we've forgotten the story and we've sort of bogged it down with qualifiers and we've created our own systems of acceptance and damnation. But the deeper purpose of the face of God is just pure love. Love that puts another before yourself. What is the purpose of the law? To make us into his family. What is the essence of his family? To be a people of love. And what is love? There's no love like this, that one would lay down their life for their friends. You might be wondering, that's just too hard. That's like, it's too complicated that Jesus fulfills the purpose of the law, the face of God in a way that none of us can. And really what he's asking us to do is just turn our faces toward him and allow his shining face, like the shining face of Moses, to so reflect inside of us, to pull us into this deeper sense of what it means to actually love the world and to love God with everything that we have. It's too much, it's too complicated. Well, up until that point, Diggory had been staring at the lion's giant paws and sharp claws. But in the moment of his desperation, he looked up into the lion's face and wonder of wonders, he saw great giant teeming tears sitting there. Will you pray with me? Lord, that your law is a gift that your, that your law is your face. That what you're teaching Israel in this story and what you're teaching us is how to love your face. And at first your face seems very terrifying because it's like ours, but it's also not like ours. And your face seems terrifying because we look into poor reflections of it in churches and in places and it's, it pales in comparison to the fullness of your grace and the fullness of your love that we see in it. But will you just reveal your face to your people right now? To every person sitting here, would you speak to their hearts, Holy Spirit, and just tell them how much you delight in them. Tell them that they are the absolute apple of your eye.
that everything you've done, you do again just for them. Everything you've done, it's been for them. To set them free, to draw them back to the table. That you came in the flesh, the face of God was given in written form and the face of God came in the flesh to fulfill the deeper purpose of who you are. Love, love willing to put another completely before yourself. What kind of God does this? There is no story like yours, Jesus. There's no story like yours. The love we find in these pages is unlike anything else we can find. And it's a love that beckons out to all of us. It's not scarce, it's not sparse. It doesn't judge, it doesn't ask questions. It says, come to the table and eat free of cost. Free of cost. It's been paid for. My love has overcome every amount of deception and rebellion and darkness and hatred and violence. It will, it has, it's going to overcome. Because death could not hold me. And it won't hold you either. Lord, would we look upon your face today? And would our hearts be melted with how good you are, Father? Wherever we are in our response towards you, Father, whatever we may think about you here in this room, would every heart look to you? Speak your words of love. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.